You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Zachary Siegel, broadcasting from Chicago, Illinois. We've got the crew in the house today, Chris. Hey, guys. Troy. Hey there. And so today on the show, we are going to be talking to a very special guest, Garth Mullins, host of the Crackdown podcast. Garth, welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. How's it going? Going good. And how are things going with you? Like, I think, I think the crackdown podcast is is blowing up and the past three episodes have been just like incredibly while it's a delight to listen to this stuff it's also just totally wrenching i think that's um going to be a main theme of this of this conversation is how emotionally raw doing the work you're doing right now which is essentially like a living oral history of harm reduction in Canada amidst a deadly overdose crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rough. I, I won't lie. Like, we're uh, making this podcast, and the idea is it's uh, drug users covering the drug war as war correspondents. And we gathered ourselves together, kind of a little group of drug user activists, and we got a little uh, science advice help and started making radio. And, you know, we were just about to... Um, dropped the second episode and one of our editorial board died and that really fucked us all up and it was it was a classic drug war death and that's uh Sharice Kiwatin and um she was an activist for a long time uh she was a real campaigner and a real fighter a Cree woman here in Vancouver and um yeah she's gone and so like this last month we've all been kind of spun uh, a little bit on that you know doing her memorial and her funeral and stuff but uh she said before, you know, we got to keep doing this through grief and anger. And I kind of thought of, um, you know, Mother Jones organizing with coal miners back, you know, over 100 years ago said, um, grieve for the dead, but fight like hell for the living. Yeah, Garth, I love your I love your tagline. Um, uh, I've I've written, I would guess you'd call it almost a manifesto about how we need to start covering this as journalists, more like the war it is. Um, I don't know how much you know about Kensington, Philadelphia, but it's it's like the Syria, uh, you know, of the drug war, pretty much. And um, you know, I, I appreciate you. Uh, you know, while while that language has been used rhetorically, obviously, uh, as a propaganda tool by anti uh, or, uh, by prohibitionists, you know, uh, I'm trying to you know take it back. Uh, Zach and I have discussed this, and well, we all have discussed this, and uh, it's nice to know uh, that there's somebody else that's thinking along the same line. Yeah, goddamn right. It feels like a war. I mean, shit, the amount of people I've lost in my life, I was trying to count up. I got to about 50, and I actually had to stop because you have to remember each of them. And it's like way too much for your brain to handle. It is a war. It feels like a war. There's military occupation of our communities. They're they're taking prisoners of war. Yeah, people die because of policy reasons, because of how they change the battlefronts. It is absolutely a war. And we have surges and, and then pullbacks. And I mean, it, it just everything parallels the way a war is fought, at least in, in the community I cover. Yeah, and I do I do know Philly as well, a little bit. And I know that the uh, the ex-governor there of, of PA was saying, um, you know, come and arrest me. 
uh, he's you know he's backing a, a safe injection site there, and he's just like bring it on to the to the de- to Trump's uh, deputy AG there, and that's exactly the right way to do it because that is the only way we've ever gotten anything here is to do it illegally first because they will never give it to you. So we have to pry it out of their hands by taking direct action. Yeah, so there's like so much to jump off from right here, and and like so so episode one though it's called war correspondence, right? And so so Chris. You wrote a column for Filter saying, like, journalists need to cover the overdose crisis like a war. And so, like, when I read that at first, I was like, so does that mean, like, you know, highlighting the brutality, you know, like images of people on the street, like needles in the neck? And and so, like, Time Magazine and, and The New Yorker, like, last year, they did these glossy photo essays about overdoses, and they showed the bodies they showed people overdosing. They showed injecting in the neck, the whole nine yards. And I like reacted really critically to it. So like in Slate, I wrote that this is like exploitive shit and that it's counterproductive. I called it disaster yeah, porn. Too. And so like that work to me, it was just like a fancier version of A&E intervention, just like total like injection needle porn. And I think after mm. like listening to the war correspondence segment and thinking more about your column, Chris, like, like, I think I want to refine my point a little bit and just feel like when, 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 when the correspondence, it, when it's like Chris Miraf, who is like embedded in Philly, or when it's, when it's you, Garth, who you're an active organizer in the drug user and, and methadone patient community, like when, when, when it's you guys doing the documenting, it doesn't feel exploitive. Like it feels subjectively different. And, and I think like, that's something I want to talk about. Like, like a, a journalist for the New York times, like escorted around Kensington to the quote, like bad part of town on a ride along with a copper DEA agent. Like, like that's going to be a slanted fucked up view of the neighborhood. Like you're rolling around with the occupier. So like, like yeah. Garth, like, like, like what's your take on this? Like, 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 do you do you think about like what is exploitation and what is documentary? Yeah, I saw those those uh, photo essays too, and I kind of reacted like you did. And I've just seen, you know, in in uh, TV news for for a generation, there's been this kind of um, needle porn type stuff, you know, just images of people shooting up, and and uh, it's there's a real class problem with it because everybody uses drugs all over like up and down the sort of uh, class hierarchy in society but it's only people who don't have a place that get shown on tv right so it's it's problematic from that it's problematic from a sort of a consent kind of perspective and a stigmatizing perspective but also you know is it is that like war coverage well there's good and bad war correspondent coverage too. Like you look at how Fox News covers the war, uh, war in Iraq or something like that. You, you look at um, how people use images of soldiers and images of casualties and stuff, even in war. Uh, you know, if, if a TV network in the U.S. went and, and showed uh, and showed people it, it, like in, in states of distress like that, they in a war, uh, American soldiers, they probably would get a lot of backlash. And they did, you know, and in, in, in the first, in the second world war, that was, you know, there was a backlash against showing American soldiers, journalists fought for the right to do so. And Vietnam, you know, which I like to, you know, harken back to because that was the last war where journalists were really allowed to go out the way we do and just, you know, cover without, uh, escorts, so to speak, you know, um, and I think that, if, you know, if you could show children dead of a gas attack in Syria, 
you know, that's a direct result of a policy. You know, I, I feel like we have to, you know, there's, there's a, there's a fine line, I think, between, between exploitation and public information. Um, and, you know, I walk it every day. Um, I've made mistakes. Who doesn't? But uh, where does your line, I guess, you know, you know, carrying what, what Zach was saying, you know, where do you find the line to be drawn? Yeah, I mean, we thought about this a lot, right? Like in episode two, we're sitting down with Laura Shaver, who's a good friend of mine, and uh, Big Pharma changed a lot of the methadone formulation in Canada and, and a lot of parts of the U.S., and it started making people dope sick again. Like methadone is supposed to do one thing. It's supposed to stop you from feeling the withdrawal symptoms from not using opioids like heroin. It's like a nicotine patch, right? And then when they change it and people are starting to feel dope sick halfway through the day, well, we all start using again. Like th th this is my story. I'm a heroin user from back in the day and I'm on methadone now. But uh, this is like if, if your treatment fails you, uh, the bottom of your life falls out. And so Laura is in that position. And we're starting the interview and she's she's got to do a hit first. And she's like, just leave the mic, you know, like this is actually what's happening. And so, you know, we, we thought about that a lot, and we made sure to tell the story the way Laura would want to tell it and to show you a fully uh, formed human being, uh, not like on the TV news when you see someone using drugs and it's just like, here's, here's a person as a random um, sensationalized image to show you how fucked up everything is. And, and in episode three, we talk about how safe injection sites can come to be in places that don't want them, you know, like lots and lots of places we show people the history of how they've been fought for and won and so we take you to one where there's uh two drug users that are helping each other and one of the drug users is a staff person and he's helping the other person inject and it's not like this sensational voyeuristic thing it's this super tender moment between these two guys uh one who's really like putting his hands on the other person and, and helping him out a lot right it's this sort of mutual aid moment so i i think it's the the narrative that you put around it and how you how you think about the people that are there. I want to take a step back and kind of talk about why we wanted to talk to you on the show. Um, when we started Narcotica about a year ago, I was talking to Zach and he mentioned that Chris and he had kicked this idea around and I we decided to go with it. There wasn't really a lot of podcasts uh, that I'm aware of that were doing uh, what we're kind of doing, which is highlighting drug use as kind of a normal human behavior Um and, and, and treating people who use drugs as human and, and also pushing back against so many false media narratives that really destroy people's lives. So when Crackdown came out, I, I have to be honest, my first inclination was, oh, we have a little bit of competition. And then, you know, after I, I could get over that like lizard brain monkey thing, I, my, my reaction is like, no, this is another voice doing something important. And this is something to really highlight. And so then I actually listened to it and I was blown away by the production and uh, how thorough you are. You have uh, you have a whole team of, of, of legal and scientific advisors that are really making this happen. Um, and I think it's really powerful. Um, what what was your motivation for, for starting this podcast? I guess uh, I've made documentary radio as a freelancer before, and I've been a, a freelance journalist. And, uh, you know, like I, I take an opioid every morning before having a cup of coffee, like methadone. And uh, so I, I just, I thought this might be a good way to punch through a little bit. But also I realized as a freelancer that I was having trouble landing stories that were a little more complex or a little more nuanced. 
and uh, that there just wasn't a space to tell the kind of thing I wanted to tell. Uh, so I even pitched the documentary uh, idea to our, our national public broadcaster, NPR's sort of equivalent north of the border, and uh, I didn't manage to land it there, even though I had gotten other uh, documentaries on there. And I just thought, ah, oh, screw it, uh, I'll have to do it myself. And then I learned a few lessons in it just from the struggle as well. Um, you know, like people don't really, they, they're highly suspicious of what drug users are saying. So when we sit down in a room with some kind of official or government person, they're just, they're disbelieving of us to begin with. So bringing along a research scientist uh, started to turn the tables on that a little bit. I mean, they didn't do what we wanted. Dr. Ryan McNeil is a research scientist. He's part of the School of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. And uh, he sometimes will uh, direct his research into what we're asking for from the community. Could you look into this? Could you study that? And then he comes and reports back. And so we just thought taking that um, combination of the lived experience and the science together, uh, taking it from, from our meeting rooms and from, our, from the streets and, and bringing it onto the airwaves, uh, we thought that could work. So, I, and I didn't know how we were going to do it, but um, it seems like it's happening okay so far. And uh, also, by the way, we don't we don't have really a big team, and uh, the and we don't have a lawyer. But uh, you know, when we're kind of calling out pharmaceutical companies, I realize we're probably going to have to sort that out a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's uh, let's enter parody mode and not slander big pharma. Okay, back back to the show. Um, so like like episode two, I think is really sort of the embodiment of of this synthesis between the user experience and the science. And so episode two, like I love the topic. It's and and you do like a wonderful investigation into it of drug tolerance, physiological tolerance, and how environment and psychology interacts with our experience of drugs and mediates that experience and and I don't think people really get like how powerful environmental cues and psychological factors are in how we respond to drugs and but like at the same time I feel like doctors use that to marginalize and disempower the experience of drug users and and to 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 talk about the episode a little bit it's about how there was this decision which sounded like a super like neoliberal decision to just change the formula of methadone to a different company called and the the new formula was called methadose and so can you talk about like what the problem was there and sort of what the, what the larger story of this change sort of uh captures when 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 treating addiction is is on the table so people all over the U.S. are taking methadose in different places. And lots of places you just can't even get access to methadone or, or suboxone or anything like that at all. So methadose is like a branded uh, big pharma version of methadone. And methadone has been around for decades. It's made generic. You know, it's there's no copyright or patent on it anymore. And so, yeah, in, in uh, about five years ago, uh, up where I live, um, the government just decided they were going to switch from the generic to the uh, branded uh, stuff called methadose. Just unilaterally, and, there wasn't any yeah. any any open hearing, any consulting of people who take the drug. Just unilaterally changed it. That's right, and and so 
uh, lots of us who were sort of activists got a little bit of a heads up this was coming. Like we figured out something was in the wind and we tried to get in there and say, hey, let's let's do some awareness raising. Let's just tell people that this is happening if we can't change it. I mean, we obviously demanded to have a say first off. But they, they said no. I mean, we put up posters at least telling people what was happening so they wouldn't be completely caught off guard. But we thought, okay, that this will be the big problem is that the change will will catch people by surprise. We never suspected that the stuff would be less effective. And so in the days after the switch, so many people, like practically everybody I know started getting sick, started getting dope sick. It's very interesting because, it, it, you know, I, I stopped using heroin with, with the aid of methadose, which was the, 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 the formulation that's been used here in, in Philadelphia. And, and, um, I always, I always thought that was kind of a myth, you know, that, that it was just like ibuprofen versus generic ibuprofen. Um, uh, but, but you, you, you were able to, you know, personally validate that, that it is a, it is a weaker formulation. I mean, it should be a, like a, a one to 100 milliliter formulation of, of the active drug to whatever the filler is. What is different about it exactly? So I don't have a lab and I haven't found anyone with a lab yet where we can get through the barriers of obtaining legally samples of both and comparing the molecule and comparing the ingredients and all that stuff. But what we did find out is anecdotally, a bunch of people were getting sick. We, we got together and had meetings. We have this group called the BC Association of People on Methadose. Sorry, on Methadone. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, we got together and people were just saying, oh, this is terrible. You know, I'm back to using heroin again. And as the weeks went on, the group just stopped meeting because everyone was out grinding, trying to get up money to, to get themselves well, right? Uh, so so it just, it almost disappeared. And then uh, we started losing people because this was five years ago and the overdose crisis was starting to creep up. And we started losing people off the group and cobbling the group back together was just, it was it was painful and sad. And I mean, the last person from the group that we lost was Sharice uh, Kiwatin, who I was talking about earlier, who's also on my editorial board, who, who died most recently. And I mean, she was basically dope sick every day for the last five years till the end of her life because this formulation didn't work for her. And we, start, we asked Ryan McNeil if he would start studying this and look at it. And he and um, uh, other other doctors, Greer, Socius, um, and others like started surveying and asking uh, people who use drugs and sort of trying to figure out, are people getting dope sick? How widespread is this problem? And it was huge. So they found, um, you know, probably half of the people, maybe more on this new stuff were uh, getting dope sick. A big proportion of them were using heroin again. Um, People were on HIV meds, were less likely to take them um, like properly in every day. And there were other, there were other outcomes of this. But we were, and so these were peer-reviewed published papers that we immediately sent to the government, and we were trying to get access to the old stuff again. Uh, but we, you know, we weren't able to, and, and we're still in a fight with the government about that right now. But we just lost so many people. I, I don't know how many people of the thousands that have died where I live. I don't know how many of those thousands would, not, would still be alive today had they had an effective uh, treatment, but it's got to be a lot. And we find uh, if you go ask people who are at the, um, the overdose prevention site, the place where you can basically use and someone will keep an eye on you and uh, give you naloxone or Narcan um, 
if you fall out, you know, if you overdose. I don't know if you ask people who go to those places, hey, are, did you take methadone this morning? Like almost a third of them say yes. So if you're if you're in a safe injection site using, and you're also and you're supposed to be on methadone, it's supposed to be working. Something's obviously not working. Right. I mean, you, you had mentioned earlier it's it's meant to take away the physical symptoms, and and I would go one step further and say it's actually meant to take away the the, the cravings. Uh, the desire, at least in my case, it, it, it did, um, um, you know, and um, I was, like I said, methadose was what was used here. Um, and there were people that used to reminisce about when they would get methadone, you know, um, and it was, you know, I, I just, I just didn't know if it was just like, you know, there's so many, there's so much mythology on the streets. Um, and and you know it, it even translates into resistance to methadone among users themselves, uh, which is tragic in my opinion. Um, uh, so methadone is is readily available in, in 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 Canada. I mean, in the sense that you can satellite dose. I mean, what, one of the biggest problems we have here in in um, the states is that there's been no talk about methadone reform, and it's. Um, you know, individual clinics are allowed to make their own policies regarding take-homes. Um, there's no, you know, universal standards. Uh, there are federal guidelines, but they're not required. Uh, and Suboxone is simply not cutting it for a large proportion of the people that are that are having that are have higher tolerances due to the fentanyl that's now in um, predominantly in all of the the, the heroin in Philly. Um, What's the, um, is there a politics around those two drugs um, where, where you are? Um, you know, is there, is there a oh, yeah. push? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we, we want to reform the methadone system here, too. I, I agree with you. Suboxone isn't cutting it for a lot of people. Um, you know, I think methadose probably does work for some people, and it worked for you. That's excellent. So I wouldn't want to take it away from anybody. I just think there should be choice. But, uh, you know, we are trying to increase the amount of choice, but authorities, health authorities love to prescribe methadone and Suboxone because it's kind of like they have a little baked-in cop, like especially Suboxone, right? It's got a naloxone uh, baked into it, so you can't really use drugs and uh, be on Suboxone without um, making some little moves there to, to do it. And um, <laughs> and methadone is the same. It doesn't have a cop baked in, but it's got a little scold baked in. It's got a little thing that, that kind of keeps you from feeling the opiate uh, directly. And uh, it, other other forms of treatment don't necessarily have that. Like um, you know, people for a long time in in other parts of the world have have used just prescription heroin, and we have a trial of that here. And I think that methadone and suboxone might not be up for it for for a lot of people in the overdose crisis so we might just be better off to prescribe people pharmaceutical grade clean heroin i feel like what what this really gets to is like that amazing quote like puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy <laughs> like like we just like can't let people experience pleasure and i feel like one of the ideological resistances to farm like doling out pharmaceutical grade heroin or injectable hydromorphone mm -hmm. is that is like why why are we just going to let people get high and i think it's going to take so much work in in the u.s to 
to fight against that. Like, like, of course, like we need to reschedule diacetylmorphine to prescribe it. And doctors currently can't prescribe or maintain anyone on things like hydromorphone. And like, that's going to be a huge battle. But as the illicit supply gets more and more and more dangerous and like Chris is saying things like suboxone or, or buprenorphine aren't powerful enough to to keep people you know alive and safe like it's an it's an inevitability like how do we not institute or at least run clinical trials and test and pilot these new ways that people can you know get their dose safely in a regulated supervised way yeah i mean this is this is the core problem in the drug war right is it's not really about evidence cuz all of the evidence is on our side it's about ideology and i mean you have that plymouth rock puritanism just deep in the dna of the country and we have the same kind of you know in english canada at least we have this kind of protestant uh work ethic you know we really in BC and a lot of Canada, you know, they really regulate where you can buy beer and under what circumstances and special government stores for it and stuff like this, you know, so it really does go back uh, a long way. And I think that's right at the heart of it is would they rather see people have a little bit of bodily autonomy or dead? And right now the answer is, well, dead. I want to kind of talk about um, differences between Canadian and U.S. policy because from an American perspective, from what I see from people in the States, is that uh, Canada is this super progressive, you know, paradise, especially when it comes to drugs. I mean, of course, you legalized cannabis recently on a federal level. Um, you at least have supervised consumption rooms and more seem to be opening on a frequent basis. Um and that kind of thing. But that's not the full picture, is it, right? I mean, there is a lot of drug policy in Canada that is regressive and is harmful towards people. Uh, can we talk about that contrast? Yeah, I mean, Canada is uh, great at marketing itself to the rest of the world as a, a bastion of, of progressiveness and, and tolerance. But really, we contain all of the same ingredients as the U.S. We're just like... Uh, we're sort of like a little apologetic about it, you know? So we, we, we sort of don't proudly say that we're shits. We try to apologize a little bit and, and sweep it under the carpet. So you just get a different style of rhetoric, but a lot of the policies are, are, are in some ways parallel. And I mean, you, you have a deep doubling down on this stuff right now. Um, but we also have politicians in the mode of Trump. In fact, I'll, I'll say that we invented the Trump before you guys. Uh, we had a mayor of our biggest city, who was named uh, Rob Ford, and he was exactly what Trump is. And so Trump came after, uh, as, a, as a political phenomenon, after Rob Ford. Now Rob Ford's brother runs the biggest province uh, in Canada, the you know, biggest jurisdiction, and he's shutting safe injection sites there. You know, and so there's a real, like, this backlash conservatism is alive and well in Canada. You know, half of the, half of the provinces are run by people, uh, and, and probably more soon, who, who are of the same. The main opposition party has uh, kind of connections into the alt-right that, are, that they, they don't even try to apologize for. Um, so, you know, we have all, all, of those, all of those same ingredients. We just, um, we're not as good as marketing them as you. So, like, we invented the smartphone up here. You know, we had the BlackBerry, uh, I think by RIM, 
uh, was the first smartphone. But of course, people don't really think fondly of the BlackBerry because you guys did it better and marketed it to the world. So it's just like we had the the BlackBerry Trump and then you guys iPhoned that shit and brought it everywhere, you know? And on, like on this note, so like a lot of like the, the capital SP serious people in drug policy in America, they look at the OD rates, the overdose rates in America and the overdose rates in Canada and Vancouver especially and say, oh, look how similar the rates are. And, and, and Canada even has uh, nationalized health care and all this harm reduction. And they take that and proceed to argue that the harm reduction interventions just don't work and that the overdose prevention effects of all this harm reduction is like way overblown. And like, this is a loaded question, but why is that argument bullshit? Because we've never implemented harm reduction, not in Canada. We've done pilot projects. We've done a few tinkering at the edge. And so we've done some tests and some studies, but we've never rolled it out as a universal standard. We sort of let any city or town decide what they're going to do. It's up to them. So if you have a, a local mayor that's a real piece of shit, won't let anybody do anything, they don't do it. You know, some places it's still very difficult to get syringes and all that sort of stuff. So the idea that we have just harm reduction and it's failed is, is completely unscientific. And those serious people are actually just rhetoricians, you know, or else they just haven't done their homework. Because, um, you know, we, it's, it's an it's a unfinished project. It really, it really has yet to be uh, properly rolled out. But also, harm reduction doesn't eliminate the harm, doesn't end the drug war. It's a reform, right? So when you use naloxone, when I break open one of those glass ampules that contains the naloxone and I draw it up, that is an intervention in the last couple of heartbeats of somebody's life. That is literally the last possible thing you could do to help. We got to go way upstream. We got to way upstream in policy, in government, and in the person's life, so that things don't get to that point. It's just it's it's it is the the band aid is the triage, right? Like someone's in a car wreck, and you're trying to drag them away from the burning, um, twisted metal, and then someone comes up and says, "Well, this person uh, this person hasn't been fully cured. What's wrong? This is obviously ineffective. You should just let them burn." It's like, well, no. We need a hospital. We need surgeons. We need all that stuff. You're you're telling me as I'm dragging someone away from a car wreck, oh, this isn't good enough. Ah, oh, well, fuck you. What are you doing? I would go on to say, like, that when the Fords were blowing up, it's like, well, like, why are all these cars blowing up? So, you know, it's because they're made poorly, right? You know, like, so our policy is made poorly. And um, in terms of the supervised injection fight, which is which Philadelphia has kind of become a nexus for, we have the first federal case now that will, I believe, ultimately go to the Supreme Court uh, for, for uh, a decision on this. Um, I was at a town hall meeting last night that was filled uh, with probably 150 to 200 very angry uh, white working to lower working class folks from the neighborhood of Kensington um, that repeatedly just shouted about how they don't want an injection facility in their neighborhood, um, ignoring the fact that they already have one. Um, it's just outside in their backyard. Uh, and on their front stoops. And, um, but what was noticeably absent was a vocal contingent of drug users. And um, we have a nation's um, effort right now to organize a drug users union here in Philly. We haven't had a lot of success with that. Uh, and I know that, that in Vancouver there has been some. Um, I wonder if you could sort of uh, 
without necessarily getting into like the, the geographic and maybe the socioeconomic differences in the population, just in general, um, what advice would you have for, for drug users that, that want to be active but are still, they have to hustle, you know, almost full time at the same time? Um, how do they find the time, how, how, how does an active drug user find the time to make it to a meeting and then with the stigma attached, speak up in, in favor of themselves? Okay, well, first of all, don't ask people to do that by themselves. We, we go collectively to shit like that. That's a, that's a high barrier to have basically a mob turn on you in one of those things. Um, try and get on the program to try and make a presentation to people. But also, it's like the question of how to organize. You're right. People got to hustle all day. Uh, you know, you sit down with some of those people who are organizing, uh, who are involved in government, who are, who are the scientists, who are the serious people you talked about. Those people get paid. We need to get paid too. So the first thing is, if you're trying to organize a drug user union, pay people to show up to the meeting. That will give them, that will carve out the time from the hustle and let people come. So it doesn't have to be much. I mean, we started with three bucks, which is basically bus fare, and I think we do five bucks right now. And I know that's like shocking to people to say, oh, they're going to spend it on drugs. Well, fuck, of course, right? But that's okay because there's an hour of someone's time where they have to do something that's not illegal, it's not harmful, it's not risky. So it's harm reduction. It helps them. And yeah, people will come and they'll show up for the money first. We, this is how we built the movement is that people showed up for the money first, but then they kept coming for the politics and the organizing. And they realized that it's, it's a, like a little bit of self-determination, a little bit of agency in your life. My God, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it should be prescribed as drug treatment. And, and then you just keep doing that. You just got to do that every fucking week for years and years, and you just keep doing it. That's, that's how you build. So what you're saying is you need uh, George Soros to, to fund uh, drug users to come to meetings. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You don't need a billionaire. And all this like George Soros stuff is just like a – it's like a terrible dog whistle. You know, it's like a terrible, nasty piece of thing. So, yeah, I, you know, if he's listening, I, we'd gladly accept uh, some of the Soros bucks, you know. But, uh, I, you know, it doesn't need very much money to start. Like it, you, really, you really don't. It's, it could be very low barrier, you know. At the end of episode three, you encourage people to do whatever it takes to make harm reduction happen. And so let's be clear here. You're asking people to break the law. And maybe that means stealing medical supplies. Uh, maybe that means opening an unofficial supervised consumption room. And I am so grateful that you are asking people to take risks like that. Although I'm not sure about the legality of suggesting such things. Oh, it's illegal. It's illegal. What we're suggesting is illegal. Like when the law is saying... You cannot open a safe injection site, and I'm telling you, just go on and do it. Yes, this is civil disobedience. We're asking people to break the law. No question about it. I'm grateful for that you asking that because that's how these things become legal, as we've already talked about. I, I'm not really aware if there's any examples of harm reduction programs becoming legally sanctioned without activists first risking arrest. Um, you know, syringe access programs, naloxone distribution, all these examples. And and, and personally. I volunteered as part of an underground needle exchange for a year in Phoenix. We did it out of our cars. Uh, every Sunday at Los Autos Supermarket at 16th Street in Roosevelt, we'd park in the back and hand out syringes and Narcan and condoms and whatever. And it was totally illegal. Under Arizona's paraphernalia law, we could have all been arrested because we had these devices used for drug use. And especially, we also collected used rigs. And they had traces of drugs on them. 
And, and the security guard, you know, he turned a blind eye to these dozens of people lining up to my shitty Ford Escape filled with boxes and boxes of syringes. But literally across the fucking street was the health department. And they should have been doing what we were doing in an air-conditioned room, you know, and not in the goddamn parking lot in the middle of summer. Absolutely. Uh, there was a law that was considered about a year ago um, that would have legalized what we were doing, but it failed. It didn't get enough political support from the Democrats. Um However, the program Shot in the Dark is still going, and they still sort of have an understanding with the cops, uh, but it's still technically illegal. So I thank you for highlighting that, because that's literally what it takes to make harm reduction laws become reality. Thank you for doing that. Like, when I, when I lived in the Bay Area, there was a guerrilla needle exchange that would set up, sometimes out front of City Hall, to make a point, you know, in the, at the... There was a big, there was a big camp there to to resist uh, the city's policies at the time too, and um, at Civic Center Park, that's where it was, and like I got, that's where I got clean works from, and I would never have been able to obtain them but for those people, and they would show up with a couple of those big white five liter gallon, whatever it is, gallon right uh, buckets, and they would have one full of new works and one to take away the used ones and. We would line up and it would go fast. You know, there'd be no check your ID, have a discussion. Here's a, it would just, and the, and the guy, I still remember this. I was just a kid and the guy patted me on the back and he's like, take care of yourself, brother. Go do what you got to do. And I was just like, fuck man, what a moment of humanity in all of this. And, uh, that, that sticks with me, you know, and I, I can't imagine, uh, how we can, how we can do it any other way. And uh, like, I've my my fucking hats off to people who are doing uh, this because I know there are a lot of places all over the states and we didn't we didn't mention that because we didn't want to blow up anybody's spot uh, on the show but we we recognize that there's a lot of people who are taking risks and sometimes you take a risk and you try and keep it secret and sometimes you take a risk and you get somebody who's you know who's situated they don't have warrants they've got some legal support and you say let's get arrested and let's challenge this thing in court let's let's bring it on and let's see what happens you know and sometimes that's how the law changes too i was fortunate enough uh, to be in a city philadelphia where we had one of the earliest legal needle exchanges thanks to then mayor uh, ed rendell i take for granted that there's places that don't have it you know i mean i i never i never really uh very rarely had to buy a, a syringe on the street um and that was 20 years ago you know so um, hats off to, to Philly in some ways for, for, for taking that step in that direction. Yeah, that guy Rundell, you know, the first time I really ever heard of him was when he was saying on the TV or the radio or something, uh, you know, come and get me to the to the U.S. attorney. And he was he was like, here's my office building address. Like, come and arrest me if you don't like it. And I just thought, oh, we need more of that. That's good. So about two miles from me right now is like the west side of Chicago proper, and that's where Chicago Recovery Alliance operates, the home of Dan Big. And he, like every time I see these his silver vans roaming the street, I'm just like, I don't know, I just like well up with tears now because he, his absence is so profoundly devastating. But the Chicago Recovery Alliance is still going on it's still doing its thing and what they're doing now and i think it's incredibly innovative they got us spectrometer devices to to go mobile and they are checking drugs on the west side and trying to like develop 
uh, like an early warning system for, for when a super potent batch is going out and, and they're getting like corner dealers to participate. They're getting drug users to participate. And this is all, all just like so far out of anything the, the health department in Chicago would ever sanction or put money to or like even see as, as viable. And they're just roaming around and doing it fucking anyway. I mean, this for, for folks maybe listening from north of the border who don't know, uh, Dan Big didn't wait for official permission to be granted to distribute naloxone to drug users. This is the, the, the substance that can reverse an overdose. I first learned about it in the 90s during the first overdose crisis in Vancouver. I've actually, this is my second overdose crisis. And we knew that the paramedics had it, but we couldn't get it. And we were the ones who were in the right place to have it. And we fought for years. Occasionally, we'd obtain it um, without permission through people like Dan. And when the health authorities found out, they would come and snatch it back off us. Cops used to arrest people for having it. And this guy didn't give a fuck. He was just like, people need this. And, you know, he would have a big bag full of it or whatever. And now I have, a, a, like, I have right over here, like, a bag full of 20 Narcan kits. And I never would have had that except for people like him. I, I'm wearing a Chicago Recovery t-shirt right now. I mean, props to this guy, right? Yeah. He, he was known for literally carrying duffel bags of naloxone everywhere he went. Like, every conference, everywhere he went, he'd have duffel bags. Yeah, he, he used conferences as a means of distribution. You know, we even we even uh, had a conference up here um, in I guess I was there in September, October of 2018. And I saw a big plastic garbage bag full of naloxone kits for someone going back into the prairies in a province that doesn't have very good naloxone distribution. So we're still doing that. You know, it's still we're still fighting to make sure this is everywhere. I asked Leo Beletsky how how much of the U.S. drug using population could probably access naloxone. And he said, mm, maybe 15%. So I, I think it's still a big struggle, you know? Oh, it's a huge struggle. I just heard that cases are, like, getting confiscated still. Like, like there are some naloxone laws, and a lot of states have them. But the one of the big problems is, like, the, the cops don't – like, they don't get a memo when the law changes. Like, like, they don't get any training on, like, okay, like – there's good Samaritan laws, like don't prosecute people who call 911 or, hey, the paraphernalia law changed, like don't arrest people for possessing syringes or now there's a standing order for naloxone and people don't need a prescription for it. Don't hassle them. Like that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and it doesn't just change overnight. And so all these problems are still carrying on even with changes in, in, in naloxone distribution and, and the laws and everything. And then we get economists like start coming out arguing moral hazard. Oh yeah. When and they're using Google fucking searches as the proxy for people getting the shit and it's just mind-numbing. It is just like like go crawl back into the Brookings Institution basement and and like write about some other shit. Like this is not your bag. So this moral hazard argument is used for needles and everything it's like if we give them this ability to be safer uh, like naloxone they'll just use more it'll just encourage them and i think it first came about for seat belts right like if you if you put seat belts in cars people will just drive more recklessly but like is some are those same people arguing we shouldn't wear seat belts are those same people driving right now driving their kids around to soccer practice or whatever the hell you guys do down there 
and they're not giving them child seats, whatever the little car seats and stuff like that? Are they just like, okay, little Johnny, uh, sorry if you rocket through the windshield, but I have a political point to make here, uh, so let's go. I, I don't believe it, you know? Just like uh, uh, apply that same logic to insulin. Like, oh, having insulin ar- around is a moral hazard for people with diabetes to like eat more donuts. It's just like an absurd line of argument, but because an economist starts cranking out papers and the Brookings Institution published it, now we have a both sides. Now journalists have two sides to cover. Do Does this, quote, enable addicts? Like, like those are the headlines now. And it's so mind-numbing to watch. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, this is where we have to speak to journalists. Get your shit together. Both sidesism is dead, right? Like, both sidesism in journalism is the equivalent of Trump saying there's nice people on both sides. No, there. Th- some things are fucking pretty clear. You know, climate change, the effectiveness of naloxone, that Nazis suck. Like, we can definitively say we don't have to relitigate those things in every article. You know, like, you can close the door on some stuff. I, I love this 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 anecdote of, uh, of you know, you mentioned seatbelts and, and sort of... The, Seatbelts are a great example of how you can change behavior without, you know, cracking down. Um, and so there's a, a, a particular source that I regularly interview and talk to, and he kind of keeps an eye on, on the street for me. And, and he, he got in the car at one time uh, and hooked himself in to his seatbelt and then proceeded to mix up a shot in his neck. And I remember pointing out, you know, I, I, I just, I love that. You know, like, it's so second nature. Um, you're putting your seatbelt on, you know? And, it, and, it, and, like, we can teach people to to be safer. And I think that's the argument that we don't have is that, in America at least, it's it's like we don't have the, the, the conversation around safe drug use. Um, you know, we, we, alcohol is legal, so we can have a conversation around responsible drinking. Um, but it's either you're using drugs and your life is a mess or you're completely abstinent. And um, I think that's a message that we, we all need to start changing. And, and part of that has come from the disease model, which basically says, you know, there is no discipline in, in, in you know, there's no willpower, there's no, um, and I, I think that's a crack of shit. I, I know people that use responsibly, and I know who use people who use irresponsibly. This is, uh, yeah, this is the problem, right? This is, I mean, it sort of aligns with conservatives and, and liberals, is that conservatives use the criminal model, like we're moral failures and we're criminals and we get, should go to jail. And, and the more liberal sort of political center type people they sort of say, well, we should be pitied and maybe sympathized with because we're sick and we should be cured. And then you got the proper left, I don't know, whatever you call it, the, the, the sociology model, which is like look around at the construction of the drug war and the society that's creating these harms and trace back the harms. You know, f- find out where that is. Maybe the individual and the molecule aren't the right units to be looking at. Exactly. Well, uh, I think this is a good place to wrap up, Garth. Um, what's next for you and for Crackdown? You're going to be doing monthly episodes for a while, right? We are. And um, next, ne- the next episode, we are going to take you to a strange, uh, unknown place for our listeners. We are going to the suburbs. And after that, um, we're going to Portugal. So... Um, those are the next the next couple of months for us are going to be taking people. Uh, you know, we've we've spent a bit of time uh, in uh, on Vancouver's downtown east side, 
and uh, we're going to take people further afield. It sounds great. Anything else you want to plug? No, just uh, the more people who subscribe to us, um, the better we do, the more chances we'll be able to keep making this uh, and keep doing it. You know, it's not it's not really a full time job for anybody, but it it w- it would uh, it would be great if it was, and uh, we'd be able to make it a little more frequently or do something more than once a month. You heard it here, folks. Support mm-hmm. harm reduction podcasting. It is a thing. I think plug a, uh, a collaboration at some point between us. I think um, if we leveraged our resources, perhaps we could do something, you know, really cool and really interesting, you know, that spans the borders. You know, I, I was thinking about that before, and we're all uh, journalists of one way or another. And maybe some kind of uh, like l- let's pull the drug war apart from the from the practice of journalism, and we go deeper into this both sidesism and uh, the kind of representations of drug users that you see, and and uh, sort of tear it apart a little bit. Yo, that is very necessary. I, I yeah, like to have some some transnational network of journalists doing this kind of journalism i think could be very powerful garth where, where can people find more about you well uh, our website is crackdownpod.com uh if you want to get me i'm on twitter that's at garth mullins g-a-r-t-h-m-u-l-l-i-n-s and the podcast is on itunes and stitcher and uh soundcloud and you know all the places where you get your podcast from okay garth mullins thanks for coming on the show Hey, thank you very much, uh, Zach, Chris, Troy. Troy, thank you so much for basically risking your freedom to give out clean needles to people like me. I, uh, that's respect, man. Seriously. The only response I have to that is the reason I did it was because no one else was. I mean, other people in the group were, of course, but I mean, like, like I said, the fucking state should have been taking care of these people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and sometimes we just have to break the way first, but, uh, like that's one I hope we can this is why I don't want us to all activists to turn into people who run safe injection sites or illegal safe injection sites because we often do I'd like us to get on to the next thing you know I want us to win something get it institutionalized have it as a health program and get on to the next thing the problem is we're always fighting rear guard battles and these wins even in Canada even in the progressive apologetic Canada they're still very precarious well, it was a pleasure having you on, Garth. Um, we learned a lot. Thanks, and I'm um, looking forward to keeping listening to the podcast. Yeah, and keep up the good uh, good work and good writing, everybody. Uh, appreciate it. You too, man. It's been a pleasure. All right, see ya.